You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, good morning. Good morning again. Good morning to you. If you are watching us online, we're thankful to have you as well. Um, if you have a Bible, will you turn to John 17? John 17, if you're an overachiever, maybe you want a Bible drill in your day and you want to put a finger also in Luke 10. We're going to spend most of our time in Luke 10, but I want you to see something first in John 17 and we'll get there in a minute. I don't know about you, uh, but it's hard for me to believe that it's August already. Anybody? Um, two reasons for that. One, I remember when I was younger, I would hear people say things like, hey, uh, as you get older, the days get longer, but the years get shorter. And I go, that makes no sense, okay? Because if the days get longer and a year is 365 days, then how do the years seem shorter? But here I am. Uh, I don't know when the transition took place in my life, but I am now a believer, okay? The days seem super long and the years seem short. And if you are like, what are you talking about? Trust me, your day's coming too, okay? Um, here's the other reason it's hard for me to believe it's August because August is typically an exciting time of year, at least for me, all right? Because summer vacation is kind of dwindling, all the vacations and people are coming back. Maybe this is because I spent so much of my life in a college town, but there's just this energy that comes back into the city in the fall, right? Where you have school starting and back to school shopping and you get your new sneakers and you're feeling good about yourself, you know? And, and football is what, just like a month away at that point? Amen? Nothing? If I can't get a go dogs, guys, we have no chance this morning, okay? Um, but anyways, there's this energy that comes with that. There's a momentum that you can feel, and it's the same way in the church. So typically around this time of year, we're getting excited, man, because we're getting ready for our fall launch, and we're going to start a new sermon series, and our student ministries start back, and kids ministry, and ministry in the neighborhood, launching new community groups, all these types of things, this energy and this excitement that typically happens around this time of year, but this year is different, right? There, there is, it's hard to believe that it's August because you can't feel that energy, you can't feel that excitement, and and I get it, right? Of course this year's different. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, maybe we're toward the end of it. Maybe we're in the middle, who knows? And, and you can argue all you want about statistics and you know, mainstream media, it's worse than, they're, they're making it worse than it actually is. I, I don't know. We all have our opinions on masks, I know, because I've seen yours on Facebook, but like, regardless, <laughs> regardless of where you land on that spectrum, the reality is this year is different. And I don't know about you, man, but I am tired, tired. And I don't just mean sleepy, although that's true too. So if you feel inclined to pray for my wife and I that our five-month-old daughter will sleep through the night, please do so. Um, but when I say I'm tired, I mostly mean that I'm weary. Anyone else just wanna hit the reset button on this year? Remember when you were a kid, you're playing video games, and you get to a spot that you're like, I just don't like the way this is going. Boop, like reset. No problems, right? I wish we could do that on 2020. I wish we could just, better yet, just skip to 2021 altogether, Okay. Um, because it seems like everywhere you look, things are broken. Everywhere you look, there's division and hostility, and maybe it's just me, but I have, in my lifetime, I've never experienced division and polarity like I see in our culture right now. When everyone's against everyone, it seems like, and if I'm honest, I wish that we could just snap a finger and have things go back to normal, and if it were up to me, I would, I promise you, I would, It'd be done, right? We'd have football come. Everything would be just the way it was. Um, but here's the thing. It's not up to me. And you know that. And it's not up to you either. But we have a theology, a belief that there is one who does have that power. 
that we have a sovereign God who, without lifting a finger, he spoke the entire universe into existence, right? Everything from the most distant planet and galaxy all the way down to the most microscopic virus. God is in control. He's in complete authority over it all. And we believe there's nothing outside of his knowledge or his control. And since that is what we believe, I think there are several implications for us as believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus. And I'm gonna give you two of them this morning. Um, Since there isn't a single thing that falls out from underneath his umbrella of authority and control, then God could say the word and coronavirus would be gone in an instant. God could say the word and, and in a moment, the actual cure for the eradication of this disease that's killing hundreds of thousands of people worldwide, um, could just, the cure for that could just pop into the mind of every physician on the planet, if God said the word. Um, and since God has that type of power and authority, here's the first implication for us, for you as a follower of Jesus, is that we should be asking him to do it. We should be asking him to do it. And maybe I talked to a few people after the first service and I, and. I just go, I know that God can do that, but I feel convicted and challenged personally that I haven't really been asking him to do that. Asking him to heal us, right? As people who've been rescued out of our sin and adopted as sons and daughters of God, as children who have a loving father who has all authority and all power, we should be asking him to bring healing to restore what is broken in the world. And so I know typically in this time, you've transitioned in your mind and you go, now I sit and I listen to a guy talk to me, but we're gonna do something different instead right now. We're gonna do the best thing that we could possibly do. For the next one minute, we are gonna pray. I'm gonna ask you to pray and ask God to do what only he can do, that he would protect us, our church, he would protect you, your family, he would protect our city, our nation, that he would bring a cure, healing, whatever, whatever the spirit stirs in your heart and mind, I'm asking you to pray. If you wanna pray with uh, your spouse or friends, family next to you, feel free to do that. If you wanna pray by yourself, feel free to do that. I'm gonna give you just a few seconds here to pray, and then I'll wrap us up. Let's pray together. Father, we just sang, who patiently waits as we constantly roam. And yet when we Find the time for you. You listen. You respond and you do have all power and authority. And so God, we pray and ask together those of us in this room and those of us following and watching on our live stream, God, we ask that you would do what only you could do. Would you bring healing? Would you restore? Would you allow the church to be the church? Would you protect us from this virus? Allow us to continue gathering in person. Mask or not, God, help us. In Jesus' name. Amen. We want to be a a praying church, a church that doesn't just pray at bedtime and before meals, although that's a great time to pray. We want a culture of prayer to saturate everything we do. We have been talking about our specs, right? The five core values that we see present in the life of Jesus as he models for us what it looks like for us to follow after him. And we call them specs, right? Scripture, prayer, engage, community, and stewardship. And, And there's no linear order to that. We just mean that we want prayer to be a fabric of everything that we do. And so it's good for us to take time in the middle of a sermon to pray and petition God to help us because he's the one who can. Here's the second implication of if God could say the word and coronavirus would be gone in an instant, then God could also say a word and you and I could be gone in an instant. And I don't mean that we would no longer exist, although he could do that also. I mean that we wouldn't be in this world anymore. God could say the word and we could be with him in glory. And this is an interesting idea. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but life in this world is difficult, right? 
coronavirus or not, because of sin, right? Life in this world is difficult, so why wouldn't God just bring us home? Why don't we just appear with him in heaven as soon as we place our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Why are we here, right? Well, Jesus himself actually addresses this idea as he's praying to God the Father. So he's in the garden. This is John 17. Hopefully you're there. He's in the garden. He's less than 24 hours away from going to die on the cross for sins that he didn't commit, sins that you and I committed. He's 24 hours away, less than that, and he's praying to God the Father, the Bible says, for his disciples, which we've said in this series are followers. So he's praying for those who would follow after him with their lives, and in verses 14 and 15, he says, I know the world is going to hate them. So he's praying to God the Father for us, you and I, followers of Jesus. I know the world will hate them because it hated me. And then in verse 15, he says, but do not take them out of the world. And that's a problem for us. Why would Jesus pray that? I know the world's gonna hate them, but don't take them out, right? Why would he pray that God would leave us in a place where we will inevitably grow weary because of sin and pain that is in and around us? Well, he answers that question for us later in this prayer. In verse 18, this will be on the screen. He says this, as you have sent me into the world, as you, Father, have sent me, Jesus, into the world, so have I sent them into the world. What this means for us is that we have not been left by God in a broken world. We have been sent by God into a broken world. And I hope you see the difference there because it is huge. This is why God doesn't just snap his fingers and when we believe in him, he doesn't just beam us up into heaven, right? Just automatically. It's because we've been sent by God. Church, this is who we are. This is our identity. This is our purpose that we have been given right standing with God through the person and work of Jesus. And every single one of your sins, our sins, past, present, and future have been paid for in full on the cross of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we are adopted as children of God, sons and daughters of the almighty God of the universe, which means that we are the church. We don't just go to church. We are the church. We've been commissioned by him to represent his interests in a world that hates us, to bring the hope of Christ into a world that is so easy to see it's broken and it is full of division and hostility. We've been commissioned by him, sent into that madness to bring order and goodness and God's love. Jesus says, despite all that brokenness, I'm sending you into those spaces. And so, so like I said earlier, I'm weary. And if I had the power to snap my fingers and put everything back to normal, I would. But I think what the Bible is saying to us here is that our God has something better for us than what is normal. God has something better for us, for you and me, than the way things used to be. I want you to hear this if you're weary this morning, if you're tired, Galatians 6. This will be on the screen starting in verse nine. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. This is what we mean when we say go be in the church. This is what we mean when we say be a disciple who makes disciples or be a follower of Jesus who, who helps other people follow Jesus, right? For the past few weeks, we've been in a sermon series that we've been calling Be the Church because we wanna dig our roots into this idea that we don't just come to this place, we are the church and we want our roots to be sunk into it so that God can bear his fruit in and through our lives, right? We, we wanna dig into the idea we haven't been left in this world that is weary, 
but we've been sent into this world so that this weary world can have a reason to rejoice. This is our identity and our purpose. So we are loved by God despite the fact that it is the farthest thing from what we deserve. The farthest thing from what we deserve. We are loved by the God of the universe and as we, you and I, together, as we become increasingly convinced that this is actually true about us, that you right now, not some future version of you, but you right now are loved by the God of the universe because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for you. As you are convinced of that, you will be compelled to share that love with the people around you. Galatians 6 verse 10 says, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. So as the church, this means that we should use every opportunity that God gives us to do good to people, but there is a particular and a specific way that we do good to those who are of the household of faith. And this is what we talked about last week. This is why the C exists in our specs, right, community. That there's a specific way that we interact with one another. What I wanna talk about this morning is the E. What do we mean when we say engage? Right? What does it mean to engage the culture for the sake of the gospel? And what we're trying to get out there is Galatians 6.10, let us, as we have opportunity from God who's sovereign, as we've been given this opportunity, let's do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Engage is, is everyone. It's encapsulating our relationships and how we interact with people, how we connect with them and how we care about them. And so what does the engaged life look like is the question that we're going to answer today. This may sound complicated, but it's actually not. I think the way Jesus would answer it is to simply say this. This is what the engaged life looks like, is when you love your neighbor. You love your neighbor. So with that, I want us to turn to Luke 10. On my Bible drill, people are already there, your finger's there, you just flip it right over. So in this passage in Luke 10, Jesus is having a conversation about what it looks like to live the engaged life, right? To be uh, engaged with the culture for the sake of the gospel, to love your neighbor. So look at verse 25 with me. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So when it says lawyer here, don't think like attorney, all right? This isn't a one call, that's all sort of situation here, like, your car accident commercial kind of guy. This lawyer means this guy was an expert in the law of Moses, an expert in the Old Testament. And when it says that he stood up to Jesus, it's not like what we would mean if we said, hey, you stood up to me or I stood up to you. It's not him challenging Jesus. This was actually, in, the, in this culture, a sign of respect. To stand up and to address a rabbi who Jesus was as teacher, then it would be to give them honor. And so on the surface of, of this passage, it seems like this guy's just being respectful, honoring Jesus, and he's asking a good question. Where does eternal life come from? And the only problem is Luke gives us some internal commentary in verse 25. He says that the motivation there was what? To put him to the test. So on the outside, he's offering Jesus honor and respect, but on the inside, his motivation's different. And we're gonna see this more as the conversation continues. So he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question with a question, which I don't know if you've ever met anybody who answers your question with a question, but it's not good what's about to happen, especially if that person who's doing that is the son of God. Okay, so verse 26. He said to him, well, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? So basically Jesus says, well, what do you think, right? You're the expert, you're the lawyer. What do you think it means, or what do you need to do to inherit eternal life? Verse 27, he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, so go do this and you will live. This is what we can see or where we can see where this guy was really after in asking this question because in verse 27, he, Jesus says, what do you think it means? And he goes, well, I actually know, right? And he quotes two Old Testament passages of scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, which is the Shema, um, which that doesn't matter. And he says, that's where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he quotes Leviticus 19, where it says, you shall love um, your neighbor as yourself. So he puts these two things together. And what's interesting about that is the only other place in the scriptures where you see Leviticus 19 and De- Deuteronomy 6 put together is when Jesus answers another lawyer's question. In Matthew 22, he says, hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment is you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second like it, you love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus creates this connection between receiving love from God and sharing love with other people. They're mutual, they can't be separated, they exist together. You love the Lord your God and you love your neighbor as yourself. And what's interesting is that that's the same answer that this guy gives, right? which means he was probably following Jesus around. He had heard him teach. He was familiar with the answer. So he knew the answer to his question before he asked it. That's what this means for us. And again, this is revealing his motivation. He had this external appearance of giving him honor and giving him respect, but what he really wanted was to be seen by other people as impressive. I want your affirmation. I want to ask this question to Jesus because I already know the answer, and people are gonna go, oh man, look how smart and godly that guy is. He's cool, right? That's what people want. So Jesus says to him in verse 28, you have answered correctly, so do this and you will live. Basically, you're right, you want eternal life, just go do what you said, right? You already have the answer. Go love God with all your heart. Go love your neighbor as yourself, which with this guy is probably a lot, right? He loves himself. And so he responds in verse 29, he says, or but he, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this is where we see the curtain completely pulled back on the lawyer, because in an attempt to justify himself, he questions the love your neighbor part, but he doesn't question the love God with every fiber of your being part, right? In his mind, he's nailing that. He's got, I don't need any help loving God. I completely love God. I don't need help there, but who is my neighbor, right? He questions that part. And so what he's doing here is he's asking, trying to clarify, who are the people that I'm supposed to love the way that I love myself? He's trying to limit the, the requirement on his life of going, who are the, the, the minimum amount of people that I'm supposed to engage with this love that you say that I should have for them? And so he says to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? And then Jesus completely changes the conversation. Instead of answering the question with a question, he tells him a story, which is big time buckle up, right? So Jesus is telling you a story now. Um, you pay attention. And the story basically is this, which we'll see later, is, is he asked the question, who is my neighbor? But Jesus says, here's how you can be a neighbor, Here's how you should be loving your neighbor. And so I want us to look at this and see what we can learn about what it means to be engaged as followers of Jesus. Three things in Luke 10 that I'm gonna give you today. Look at verse 30. So Jesus replied, there's a man. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him and they departed, leaving him half dead. So even though this is a fictional story, right? This is a parable Parable of the Good Samaritan, you've heard it before, right? You're familiar with this. And hopefully we'll learn some new things together this morning about that. But even though this is a fictional story, it's not a fictional setting, right? There really was a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, It was 18 miles long. And it really did go down to Jericho because Jerusalem is 3,000 feet higher in elevation, right? So this fictional story, but not a fictional setting. And, And this was just an ordinary road for them. 
right? An ordinary path. And the first thing I think that we can learn about living the engaged life and loving our neighbor is this. The engaged life happens on the ordinary paths of our life. Let me explain. Um, A couple years ago, several years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church in Texas and we took a group of high school students to Kenya uh, on a trip. And so we were partnering with this pastor who was planting a church in this super rural area, like crazy rural. And um, while we were there, we, we actually helped him physically build a structure for his church to gather, but we actually helped him build his church by going door to door from like hut to hut, sometimes miles apart with the use of a translator and just engaging people in conversation. And just, and, and just you know, how, how are you? Hello, what's your name? Getting to know you, whatever. And inevitably, they would ask, hey, what are you doing there? What are you doing here? And, and we would share with them about why we were there. We're here because we believe that there really is a God. Now you really have, and so have I, we've sinned against him, and the only way for us to be reconciled to God is he sent his son to die for us, and this is the good news of the God. We, we would share with them the good news of the gospel, going, this is why we are here, because we want you to know this, and we want you to know there's a man who's planting a, a church in your community, and it's about to get started, and we'd love for you to come with us. And so it was this incredible experience, right? I saw God move in amazing ways on that trip, but here's the thing. Those paths that I walked from hut to hut were anything but ordinary for me, right? Anything but ordinary. And yet, when people asked me, what are we doing there? There's no question in my mind. My purpose for being there was completely clear and as awesome as that opportunity was, we read earlier, Galatians 6 says, let us not grow weary of doing good and as we have opportunity, as God gives us opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And my question for us this morning is, how much more opportunity do we have on the path of life that we walk every day? every single day, the ordinary path. This is why I think Jesus places this story in this setting because the engaged life happens most of the time on the ordinary paths that we live our lives on. And yet for most of us, our purpose in those spaces aren't as clear, is it? So on those paths going from hut to hut, no question in my mind, I am on this portion of the planet because I am here to tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done for them and how it's transformed my life completely. But what about when I'm on the way to work, on the Truman? What about when I get to the office? What about when I'm running errands? What about when I'm pumping gas? What about when I'm in my front yard and my neighbor pulls into his driveway? How clear is my purpose then? And earlier we saw that Jesus says, as the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you, which means that with every bit of intentionality that God the Father purposed and sent the son into the world to take away the sins of the world with the exact same intentionality and purpose, Jesus has sent you to where he has you in the world. Every ordinary path of your life is purposed by God. Your neighborhood, your apartment complex, your classroom, your cubicle, and on and on and on I could go. The engaged life happens mostly on the ordinary path, and I say mostly Because there are times where God wants to get us off the ordinary path of our life and just change the way we see how big and great his love for us and for his people are. But if you've ever had an experience like that where you saw God move in a way that was off your ordinary path, or if you didn't, you can ask somebody, I promise you, you come back home to your ordinary paths far more convinced of God's love for you and far more compelled to share that love with the people around you. I think this means for us that when we're considering what house 
to buy, what job to take, right? I think it means that it has to be more for us than which one pays the most. Which one has the best school district? Which one has the countertops that we like best? And it's not because God doesn't care about school districts and our countertops, right? He does. It's just there's something bigger going on, that our primary purpose in our life is not to have nice countertops or for our, even for our kids to go to a great school. That we've been sent by God, commissioned by him to bring hope to a world that is weary. And we're over here going, but what school's best? Has to be more than that. And again, I want my kids to go to good schools. That's not what I'm saying. It's just there's something deeper than that that motivates us deeply. If the essence of Christianity is loving God and loving our neighbor, if the greatest commandment is to love God with everything we have and love our neighbor as ourself, then it is not enough for us to go to church, love our family and friends, and then just smile at our neighbors on the occasion when we can't ignore them. It's not. Jesus has sent us into this world. He hasn't left us here. The engaged life happens on the ordinary path. So back to Luke 10. Jesus says there was a man who was traveling on this ordinary road alone and he ends up getting robbed. And it wasn't just a, hey, give me your wallet kind of situation, let me go about my way. They take everything he had, they take the clothes off his back, they beat him and they leave him for dead in the ditch, right? And then I think we can all agree that's, that's a bad day, right? Yes, it is. If you're questioning that, then you need to wake up. Here we go. Then Jesus says, as he's lying there unconscious in the ditch, three different guys come to where he was. And the first man was a priest. So this man was top tier religious elite in Jewish culture. He was a mediator between people and God. And so when they heard, here comes the priest, they hear, dun da 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 the hero's here, right? Of course he's gonna do what's right, but then look at verse 31, it says this. When he, the priest, saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So he makes an intentional decision as he sees this man who could use his help to move away from him rather than moving toward him. And then here comes the second guy, verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, and Levites were like JV priests. They were religious elites as well, just not quite up there with priests. When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then verse 33 says this, but a Samaritan. So right about now, there would be a gasp in the audience that he Jesus would have the gall to use the word Samaritan. So without going too deep into it, Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews, right? Um, and there were ethnic reasons for that, and there were racial reasons for that, um, but Jews hated Samaritans, right? And look at what he does next. But a Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, the man in the ditch, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, and he poured oil and wine on them. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This is the second thing that we can learn about the engaged life. Um, it's the engaged life is full of expense instead of excuses. It's full of expense instead of excuses. Here's what I mean. There's a striking contrast between the response of the Samaritan and the response of the priest and the Levite. They all see him. Priest and Levite move away from him intentionally and the Samaritan moves toward him, which means the Samaritan willingly takes on the expense of taking care of this man, but the priest and the Levite make excuses. And so maybe you're like, what version are you reading, pastor? Because I don't see any excuses here in my Bible. Well, remember who Jesus is telling the story to, right? A man who sought to justify himself by asking the question, well, then who is my neighbor? And then here you have this story, a priest 
this top tier religious elite who rides by this man, he has an opportunity to help, but instead he makes an intentional decision to go to the other side of the road. He just goes on his business. He's full of excuses in that moment of, of why he shouldn't be the one to help in that situation, and here's why. Because chances are, if a priest was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, he was leaving after just being ceremonially cleansed, right? Purified for the work of an office of priests. And so there are all these rules and regulations about what had to happen, and it took a long time, and it was a really expensive process, and so he's going back to Jericho um, to do his job to make sacrifices for the people for their sins and to receive offerings for God. And so if he tried to help this man who looked dead and he touched the man, it turns out he was dead, that he would have to go all the way back to Jerusalem, go through the whole process again. If the man wasn't dead, but he was just bleeding and he got some of his blood on him, there was a law that said that a priest got someone else's blood on them, they would have to go all the way back, be repurified, re-cleansed, expensive, long process. It meant he couldn't do his job, he couldn't pastor his flock, he couldn't receive the offerings, it meant he couldn't provide for his family for a couple other weeks, right? He has all these excuses, and so he sees this man, and instead of moving toward him, he moves away. And he can easily justify himself in that space, right? I should probably help, but I gotta get back to Jericho. And who knows, like, this guy might be a decoy, there might be guys hanging around him, and when I go to try to help him, I'm gonna end up like him, I'm gonna get beat up too. Or maybe if he would have made better life decisions, then he wouldn't end up in the ditch like this as you just keep on, right? It's easy to make excuses. The Bible says the Samaritan comes by, he sees the man lying there, and the different response is he had compassion. This word compassion in the original language, it means intestines, which means he just has this feeling in his gut, and it moved him to action. Verse 34 says, he went to him. Right, he goes to this man, and he he shows him this extravagant love and he binds his wounds and he pours wine on them as like a disinfectant and he pours oil on the wounds to like comfort the man's pain and then he puts him in his place on his horse and he inconveniences himself and walks beside him the rest of the way to the end and he pays his way so the man can be cared for and he says, whatever you spend for him, I'm gonna pay for it when I come back. This complete, constri- complete stranger who hated him, he did all this for that man. And in the same way, if we're gonna love our neighbor, if we are going to live the engaged life, then our lives will be full of expense instead of excuses. We live in a world that worships at the altar of self, meaning whatever's good for you is what you should do. And if anyone gets in the way of that, then you need to tell them that they need to move on, you need to find new friends because you do you, right? Particularly, we, we worship the altar of self when it comes to the areas of comfort and convenience. What Jesus is saying to us here and in other places in the scriptures is that to live the engaged life, we have to be willing to put the comfort and convenience of other people ahead of our own. And it's easy to make excuses instead of living that way, isn't it? Right, we see someone who could use our help, whether they're in the ditch or in the office next to us. And we feel that feeling of going, I should do something about that, but what's it gonna cost me? How uncomfortable is it going to make me? How inconvenienced would I be? It's easy to make those excuses and feel justified, right? They wouldn't need my help if they would have made better life decisions. It's his own fault. He made his bed. He's gonna lie in it, right? Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've said that to other people as advice. I would give that person at the intersection money, but what are they gonna do with it if I give it to them? Are they gonna spend it the way that I think they should, right? We make excuses because loving people like this is expensive. It's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, but Jesus says so is the engaged life. 
And what's interesting about this story is that Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero here. Right, it seems like he could have made the same point if the hero of the story were just a common Jewish man. So the priest and Levite came by, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, but here comes this common Jewish man, and look, he did it. But Jesus is getting at something different here by making the Samaritan the hero of the story. So this lawyer says to him, well, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus is trying to get him to understand it's not about limiting the people you're supposed to love, it's about how can you, how should you be a neighbor? How should you live your life as a follower of Jesus? And I think this is huge for us because many of us are willing to love people like this in a way that makes us uncomfortable and inconvenient in a way that's expensive as long as we think they deserve it from us or as long as we think they'll do what we think they should do with that love, right? We're willing to open our homes and put ourselves in expensive, uncomfortable situations for people who we deem are worthy. But in Jesus' story, he says, the hero is a Samaritan, a man who is seen as an enemy by the Jews, right? And you can see that in the story. Look at verse 36. When Jesus finishes telling the parable and he says, well, which of these three, lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. He's so floored that Jesus would make the Samaritan the hero of the story. He can't even say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy, I guess, right? And that's why Jesus makes him the hero of the story challenging that in him. And if, and if you and I were having this conversation with Jesus, he would make the person or the group of people that we hate most the hero of the story as well, right? It's the, the folks that you get in an argument with on Facebook, the people you roll your eyes at when you see a certain sticker on their car or a certain sign in their yard. That's who Jesus would make the hero of the story for us. And he'd say, hey, go love your neighbor like that guy does. You go, wait a minute. That guy's a bum. She does this to whatever, right? We, we, we go that place in our mind. You see, we're willing to love people who we think deserve our love or they'll do with our love what we think they should. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said that you shall uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus is redefining what it means to be a neighbor. Reconstructing for us what, how we should view our neighborhoods. It's not just the people who deserve our love, it's all of them. So in Luke 10, this lawyer enters a conversation with Jesus and he's hoping that he would walk away looking impressive to the people around him, remember that? And he just gets his heart laid open in front of everyone by Jesus, exposed. At the end of verse 37, Jesus says this, now you go and do likewise. You go and love like this guy who you despise. You go and love like this guy who you wouldn't give a second look. That's the last that we hear from him, the lawyer. Now you go and do likewise. And so we're left wondering, man, how did he respond? What did he do? And, and I think the point is that he just walks away because living a life like that is incredibly difficult. In fact, it's probably impossible. It is impossible. And Jesus knows that. Right, when he says to this lawyer, go and do likewise, he doesn't actually expect him to be able to do it. Remember earlier that he asked Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As if his performance plays a role in what inheritance he receives from God. And then when he gets his question answered, he pushes back, not on the love God with every fiber of your being part, not the every thought, every affection, every action, every minute of the day that you are alive. You should love God with all of that. He doesn't push back on that. He pushes back on loving people. And he says, well, then who is my neighbor? 
Jesus answers him with a story to teach him that your neighbor is even the guy you hate. Let me just change, even the guy you despise. More palpable language for us. He just walks away from Jesus because living like this is impossible and Jesus knew that. So we started this series and we said that we have a tendency to skip over the B of being a disciple and we wanna move to the do. What do I need to do? Just like this guy, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But what we said was discipleship doesn't start with what we do, it starts with what Jesus has done. And so the third thing uh, that we see about living the engaged life is this, and it's been on the screen, is the engaged life is impossible, period, without Jesus. The engaged life is impossible without Jesus. And so let me explain this. Where we go wrong in this story is we think now it's up to us to be the good Samaritan. That's what this guy thought as he walks away from Jesus, probably never to return. The engaged life is impossible without Jesus. We think it's up to us to go and be the good Samaritan. We have to do our best to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have to do everything we can to love people, even the people we don't like, and that's just too much for us. It's impossible. But the point of the story is, it's not for this lawyer or for you and I to go and be the good Samaritan. The point of the story is, that that's who Jesus already is. Jesus is the good Samaritan. You and I are the beat up man left for dead in the ditch. People passing us by. No one willing or able to do what we need them to do for us. And Jesus sees us. Jesus sees you. And instead of passing you by, he's filled with compassion. This move to action going, I've gotta do something because only I can. And he comes to us. And he meets you in the ditch of your sin and your shame. And he, he puts us in his place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We're taken out of the ditch of our sin and shame and we're put into a position of righteousness and he binds our wounds and he comforts us in our pain and he takes a position of inconvenience and he walks with us to the end and he foots the bill. He pays the debt that we owe because of our sin and he gives us a promise that one day he will return. I say that living like this is impossible without Jesus because apart from the love of God indwelling you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will never love God or love your neighbor. It's impossible without him. We might be able to do some loving things every now and again, apart from him, on our own strength, which is an exhaustible resource. Again, we know this, it depends, like my capacity to love people and my own strength depends on how much food or sleep I've had. Same thing for you. We can do it every now and again, our own strength, but living like this is impossible, and Jesus is teaching us to ask a different question, not what must I do to inherit eternal life, but can you believe all that he has done? all of himself that he has given to me freely and completely, then we were, again, we receive this love and as we become convinced of this love and, and dwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes our mind to go, I'm actually loved by God. I belong to him as a child and it's that that changes us from the inside out and we begin to love God and love our neighbor. We're convinced of God's love for us and we're compelled to share that love with the people around us. It is impossible without Jesus. Impossible to live a life for Jesus if you don't live a life with him. 1 John 4, 19 says we love, we live this life of doing good to everyone. We love because he 
first loved us. He's our example. The only way that we would be willing to be uncomfortable and inconvenienced for people, especially those we don't think deserve it, is if we are convinced, we believe that the God of the universe spared no expense to us and it was the farthest thing from what we deserve. And you're loved by God that way. This is why we say go and be the church. Come to this place, gather, be reminded that you're loved by God and then scatter. Go to your neighborhoods and your office and your cubicle, your ordinary paths, right? Because the engaged life happens mostly on the ordinary paths of our life. It's expensive, it doesn't make excuses and it can't be done without Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is in Matthew 28 is as Jesus is commissioning his disciples, he says, go and what? Make disciples of all nations Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Again, impossible. And then he says this, but behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The engaged life is impossible without Jesus, but we don't have to do it without him. He's with you. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing and respond to the good news this morning. Father, we are so thankful that you did not leave us in the ditch of our sin and shame. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, would you convince us that it's true, that you did not pass us by, but you came to us. You put us in your place. Convince us this morning that that's where we are right now, that we are seen by God the Father, and he is not disappointed in us, but rather his delight is in us, that he loves us. We love you, God, because you first loved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.